want to share with you this morning uh, two passages from Scripture. First, from the letter of Hebrews, letter to the Hebrews, rather, uh, written sometime in the first century, shortly before or just after the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem um, by the Romans. A letter written by an individual um, whose name we do not know any longer, but who was also almost certainly rather, certainly a Jew and completely familiar with the activities of the temple in Jerusalem and to a community uh, of Jews who followed Jesus who were also completely acquainted uh, with the practices of the temple, very much focused on the sovereignty of God, the glory of God, the wonder of God's purposes throughout the ages and how that glory and majesty and sovereignty is fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Many wonderful and memorable passages uh, from this important uh, letter, which reflects the early church's attempt to understand and then to describe, to name, the way in which Christ, Jesus, the man of Nazareth, is somehow the expression of or the image, he says, of God in the world? Or is this man, Jesus, the risen Christ, God? The the early church, at this point, very early in its history, the church doesn't exist. And the theology of the church is very much a fluid idea coming into being crystallized into a true idea or ultimately a, a doctrine of what would come to be known as the Trinity. And you'll hear in the reflection of that attempt by the early Christians to understand and describe more fully the nature of that relationship. You'll also hear the echoes of the seventh, the eighth Psalm, which we used in our call to worship this morning. Interestingly enough, the author uh, will refer to this as something he heard someplace. (laughs) It's the eighth Psalm. I'm not sure why he doesn't say what it is. It's almost like, you know, his neighbor told him about something that his cousin had told him. It's like an internet thing, right? Okay. Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors in many and various ways by the prophets. But in these days, God has spoken to us by a son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the worlds. The reflection of God's glory, the exact imprint of God's very being, who sustains all by his powerful word. So you can hear how he's trying to exact imprint, the reflection, the sun. It's not really clear yet, but Jesus is not just another prophet, but there's something about Jesus which is unique. When he had made purification for sins, that is to say by going through his suffering, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as to the name he inherited is more excellent than theirs. So he goes through this suffering, the cross, and he ends up seated next to majesty. No, not her majesty Elizabeth, Queen of England and Scotland and Wales, the United Kingdom, 
right? I, I mean, the English uh, monarchy is an interesting uh, phenomenon, right? But uh, one of the things that's deeply troubling to me is the idea that the Queen, Elizabeth II, whoever happens to be monarch, is Her Majesty or His Majesty. The Bible is very clear. Majesty belongs to God, not to a human being. So as a, uh, a Democrat slash Republican, little d, little r, um, the monarchy is this, you know, it's a crazy idea. Because he'll go on here now in the second chapter to talk about reflecting, repeating the eighth psalm, this idea about the nature of every human being, not just Elizabeth II or any other person. Now, God did not subject the coming world, about which we are speaking, to angels, but someone has testified somewhere, the eighth psalm, we are human beings. What are human beings? That you are mindful of them, mortals, that you care for them. You have made them a little lower than the angels, crowned them with glory and honor, making them stewards of all that you have created. This remarkable insight in the eighth Psalm and now expressed again in the letter to the Hebrews of how all of us are actually more than the angels and that God is mindful of us. All of creation is loved and blessed, is known by God, created by God, sustained by God, and yet humans have been chosen for a particular role, every human being, to be a steward of all that God has created, not some above others, but all equally embraced as stewards. Who are we that you are mindful of us, mortals, that you care for us, you, you make us little lower than the angels, crowning us with glory and honor? You hear how that was repeated by Irenaeus in the second century. Stewards of all things. The insight contained, I think, here in the letter to the Hebrews finds its root not just in the 8th Psalm, but in the remarkable ministry of Jesus and the truly radical nature of his mission and ministry his interaction with people. In the 10th chapter of Mark's Gospel, he opens um, with some reflections on the nature of domestic relationships, marriage, etc. Not so much in a normative sense, but actually in a very liberating way for the rights and status of women. But today I want to focus on the second part of this passage in chapters chapter 10, verses 13 through 16. It's again a story about children. We looked at that a couple weeks ago. Remarkably, the same kind of experience where Jesus welcomes children is told by Mark just a few verses later. This fact alone tells us, it suggests rather, the historicity of what happened, that this has actually happened. Why would you repeat the story so quickly unless it was something that had actually occurred? but it also points to 
the truly radical nature of what Jesus was saying about God and people, all people, in their relationship with God. People were bringing little children to Jesus in order that he might touch them, and the disciples spoke sternly to them to go away. Now what's remarkable is that this has just happened a couple of days ago, and yet they repeat the same mistake. Go away. When Jesus saw them, he was indignant again and said to them, Let the little children come to me. Do not stop them, for it is to such as these that the kingdom of God belongs. Truly I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will never enter it. And he took the children up in his arms, he laid his hands upon them, and he blessed them. Children. In our world, children in very well, a very real way, form the center of our social life. If you have a room full of adults and somebody walks in with a baby, what happens? Ooh, I'm the, I'm the worst one of the bunch, right? Making faces at the baby, smiling at the faces of the baby, cooing, you know, and loving the babies. But in the ancient world, if you were in a room full of adults and somebody walked in with children, people would look at you and say, what did you bring that child in here for? You ought to have left them outside. Put them in the corner. Let's hope they don't cry. Okay. Children were the last, the least, and in many ways the lost. They weren't exactly feral children, but pretty close. In the ancient world, most children died before the age of five. The remarkable fact, of course, is that in our own day, in vast reaches, regions of the world, most children die before the age of five through childhood illness, which could be easily prevented or treated if folks were granted access to the medical resources that are available to us. Another topic. But children were not the center of concern. Children were thought to be, really, until they were economically active, unimportant, tolerated, but not doted upon, not respected. And yet Jesus says to have the innocence of a child, to receive the kingdom of God like a child, not because they're cute and cuddly, but because in a very real way they are despised and rejected, almost disrejected by the world. They're not important. Because they're not important, they're beloved of God. The radical nature of Jesus' ministry is not determined by who he excludes. Most religions are defined, at least in part, by exclusion. This is particularly true since the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century. When you're in or you're out, based on what you believe about certain doctrines or sacraments of the church. The 17th century in Europe was marked by the most vicious bloodletting, one of the most vicious bloodlettings in the history of humanity, by Christians visited upon other Christians over their definition of the doctrine of the sacrament. All done in the name of the Prince of Peace. The remarkable nature of Jesus is not how he decides, decides and defines who's excluded, but how he determines and insists upon the inclusion 
It's inclusion that gets Jesus in trouble. It's his radical acceptance that gets him killed, not his exclusion that saves him from the authorities. When Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan in the Gospel of Luke, this is perhaps the best known of all the Gospels, of all the parables. We hear about the high and mighty priest who walks by, the highfalutin lawyer who walks by. We cluck our tongues at their insensitivity and then feel so warm and wonderful about the Good Samaritan. This sounds like a, a, a simple, homely uh, story about how we should stop and help one another. And it is that, of course. But its real power, the true punch in the parable, is the fact that it's a Samaritan who stops and helps. The Jews who heard Jesus, Jesus was a Jew, the followers were Jews, the people who heard the parable were Jews. The Jews and the Samaritans in the first century were like the Protestants and the Catholics in Northern Ireland since the 17th century. They hated each other. And so when he told this parable, and the hero of the story is the Samaritan, that Jesus makes his essential point. That this person, despised by you, the hearers, does what God wants, loves God, is loved by God, is an expression of God's love for somebody who's lost and benighted, suffering by the side of the road. Okay. God is love. Those who live in love live in God. And God lives in them. So wrote John in his first letter. God is love, and those who live in love live in God, and God lives in them. So again with the children, he has to tell this story to make the point, drive it home. Because it's so hard for us to accept the idea that God loves the people we despise. You can be sure you're creating God in your own image when you are certain that God hates the people you hate. And there's a lot of that going around, even in our own hearts, if we're honest. To live in the God consciousness, to understand fully that no one is beyond the love of God, that everybody is included in the household of love. Amen.